And if you would, uh, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We're reading verses 2 through 9 this evening. I want to say just a little bit, uh, not so much on this passage, uh, but more just on uh, the book of Ecclesiastes in general and the way it's often interpreted. In the evangelical church, you'll often encounter the, the approach to interpreting it that Ecclesiastes, it's trying to show the vanity of a purely secular or atheistic worldview. And so a number of evangelicals would say that what it's trying to do is to show the, the logical outworking of an atheistic starting point, an atheistic uh, presupposition. And now that's a useful thing to do when you're engaging in apologetics, defending the faith. Um, uh, one of the There are many compelling arguments for the truth of Christianity, but one of those uh, compelling arguments is the the fact that all other options are uh, insufficient. They reduce to absurdity at some point, and they they can't explain the world as it uh, exists. Uh, Greg Bonson, some of you may know his name, he was a very significant Reformed Christian apologist back in the 70s, 80s. He constructed a proof of Christianity by arguing the impossibility of the contrary. So in one of his books, he writes this. In various forms, the fundamental argument advanced by the Christian apologist is that the Christian worldview is true because of the impossibility of the contrary. When the perspective of God's revelation is rejected, then the unbeliever is left in foolish ignorance because his philosophy does not provide the preconditions of knowledge and meaningful experience. To put it another way, please do so we can follow you. To put it another way, the proof that Christianity is true is that if it were not, we would not be able to prove anything. You really couldn't make sense of anything in the world if Christianity weren't true. So, you know, to take, for example, the materialistic worldview, uh, just as one example, You can't start with this mass of impersonal stuff, which somehow is always floating in the universe somewhere in space before something blew it all up uh, in a big bang, and then by some impersonal process kind of organized itself over bazillions of years into all the various forms of life as we observe it nowadays, uh, particularly human life with all of its personality and beauty and interest, uh, those things obviously exist. We have personalities. But personality does not emerge from impersonal stuff that is subjected to impersonal processes. It doesn't matter how long that goes on. Personality is not going to emerge from it. And so any time that you are... Uh, you encounter someone with a materialistic worldview that just says, you know, matter was all that's been there from eternity. Uh, anytime you encounter somebody like that who then starts trying to find some way to acknowledge the fact that personality exists and we are individuals and that sort of thing, you kind of have to keep slapping that. It's like you're slapping the child's hand away from the cookie jar. It's like, no, you're stealing something that you're not allowed to have. You can't have personality if you start from an impersonal beginning that is just undergoing impersonal processes for jillions of years. Um, 
And so I think it is important to try respectfully and lovingly and all that to show these sorts of deficiencies in a secular atheistic mindset or with the worldview of any of the religions of the world. And so a lot of evangelicals think that that's what Ecclesiastes is trying to do, but that's not what it's trying to do. Uh, because for a number of reasons. In point of fact, there were no philosophical atheists in the ancient world back when uh, the book was written. Everybody believed in gods of some sort, usually lots of gods, multiple gods and goddesses. And so atheism, as we know it as a philosophy today, it just was not an intellectual option for anybody in the ancient world. And so Ecclesiastes, it wouldn't have been written to try to respond to that anyway. And as you, you'll, you see it very clearly as you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, it's clearly written from a believing standpoint. The preacher talks about God constantly. You never find him at any place adopting sort of a secular worldview just for the sake of argument to show how absurd it is in the end. The preacher is always reckoning with the reality of God. And so that's why, even though that's a very popular interpretation uh, with a number of evangelicals, uh, I don't go with that approach. Well, okay, so that was a little bit of just a side comment, a long side comment. Um, for our reading this evening, we're reading verses 2 through 9, chapter 8. And we've noted before the preacher has a, a real interest in politics and observing human society at large. And tonight's passage, it deals with politics uh, from the standpoint of somebody who's directly involved with it. Uh, so in this case, he's kind of speaking to someone who's an advisor to a king. So let's turn to our scripture reading. Uh, Ecclesiastes 8, starting in verse 2. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Uh, and if you're uh, reading in the ESV and can see the footnote there, uh, it can also be read as because of your oath to God. That's the correct view, and I'll talk about it a little bit later. Uh, because of your oath to God, be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although a man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the reading of his word. Heavenly Father, we uh, do want to pause, and as we uh, have read about uh, politics this evening, we do want to pray for our political uh, leaders uh, locally, uh, our state leaders, our national leaders, for President Trump, uh, his cabinet, the uh, Congress. Uh, we pray for the Supreme Court, for all those, Lord, that you've placed in authority over us in one way or another. We do pray for your spirit to work in each one of them. Uh, to give them a desire to pursue righteousness. And Lord, grant us wisdom this evening from your scriptures as we seek to learn how uh, better to live as your people 
in a world, a world that is full of politics and uh, often difficult politics, help us to know how to walk wisely uh, through it. Lord, equip us through your word this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know the gospel account of uh, the centurion who comes to Jesus and he asks him to heal his servant. Matthew chapter 8 is one place we read about that. And we read there that when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. And here's where it gets interesting. The centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Uh, the centurion was well aware that he, he had authority over people, but he was also under authority, and we're all under authority of some kind. Children are under the authority of their parents. Students are under the authority of their teachers. Employees are under the authority of their supervisors and bosses. And we're all under uh, the authority of our uh, civil magistrates and so on. The wealthiest of the wealthy in our country, they are accountable to government authorities. At least technically they are. In our democratic form of government, even our governing authorities are accountable to someone, the judicial system, to the people, to the other branches of government, and so on. Everybody's under some kind of authority somewhere. They're answerable to someone. And so this passage that we've just read, it deals with someone who's under authority, specifically a royal counselor, a royal advisor, someone who's in a position of giving advice to a king or a ruler. You might think of someone like a cabinet minister. Uh, so it's talking specifically about someone under political authority. It is applicable to other situations as well. I'll try to, to bring out some of that application later on. But let's look at the text first to just get a clearer understanding of what's going on here. And uh, we, we need to begin with the ending here. First thing we have to look at is verse 9, because this is talking about a bad situation. So we're not dealing with a good situation where things go well and things are operating the way they're supposed to. Someone is misusing their authority. Verse 9, all this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun. When man had power over man to his hurt... So this person in authority, this person with power, is exercising that power badly. They're abusing their power to the hurt of others. So, so we have to understand this from the get-go here. We're not talking about a situation where things are going the way they should. It's a situation where a leader is bad, or at least is ruling badly. And we've seen that plenty of times uh, here in America, we've seen it elsewhere, other places around the world. We've seen political administrations that abused their power. Could be the present administration, could be previous ones, could be every single political administration ever. 
The point is, you have seen men exercise power over other men to their hurt, not for their benefit and their blessing. So we've seen verse 9 go down. Well, how do you respond? What do you do with that? Well, I suppose most of us, when we see that, we complain a lot, right? (laughs) We complain about the government all the time. And because we live in a modern democracy where one's right to free speech is maintained, we can complain all we want about the ruling authorities without worrying that the secret police are going to drag us away in the middle of the night. You know, you can post stuff online for anyone to see. You can attend demonstrations. You can carry signs in the street denouncing any ruler that you dislike. You can help campaign for, the, uh, for a different political candidate. You can do all of that and not worry about getting taken off to the gulag. And we should be thankful for that <laughs> because there are plenty of places in the world today Uh, plenty of times uh, from recent memory, when you would have gotten in serious trouble for speaking out against the government. Thankful to be living in the modern world like that. But we have to remember that in ancient times, uh, those rights weren't as carefully guarded, and so you had to be much more careful about what you say if you don't like a particular king or what a particular ruler was doing. The book of Ecclesiastes, it discourages people from grumbling too much about the government. Everybody feel convicted right there? Uh, Chapter 10, verse 20, the preacher says, Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell of the matter. Just as an estimate, I can think of, I don't know, maybe a hundred or so of my closest friends and acquaintances who need to take those words to heart, and I include myself. Uh, Some are left-leaning, and all they can do is curse the current king, the president currently in office. It's very tiresome to listen to, but let's be honest, Most of my right-leaning friends and acquaintances did just as much cursing of the Obama administration or the Clinton administration. So it happens on both ends of the political spectrum. And the preacher in chapter 10, verse 20, um, he's giving some advice there partly for self-preservation. Back in the day when criticizing the king could be very dangerous. But he's also laying his finger on a deeper spiritual problem, which is that it's not good for us spiritually to be habitually complaining about kings and rulers. Grumbling about them instead of praying about them, which is what scripture actually tells us to be doing. You're grumbling and cursing about ruler so-and-so. It will spill over into other areas of your life. And then you'll become someone who just grumbles and curses about all sorts of things, not just politicians. There's a spiritual problem there. And so the preacher, he has a word there in chapter 10, verse 20, for for every disciple uh, in terms of trying to hold in check his or her thoughts, not to mention words, about the reigning king. 
So in our passage this evening, he's addressing someone more specifically who's in a position of advising a king, a bad king, as we saw, and uh, as someone, as I pointed out, the ESV footnote, verse 2, it says, this is someone who has not, uh, who has made an oath to God to serve the king faithfully. Um, well, you know, uh, it's great to be a top advisor to a great leader, someone who's competent, has character and uh, integrity and all that, oh, that's a great job to have. The problem comes when the ruler is not leading faithfully, uh, when he's abusing his authority to the harm of others. And as the king's sworn advisor, what do you do then? Uh, looking out at you, uh, and just thinking about this, it's like, well, that seems like a very far-fetched scenario, uh, very far removed from my daily life. And so we might just kind of rush past this passage because, you know, I am not a presidential advisor, never have been. I wish some would ask for my opinion on things, but they haven't called me up yet. And I'm thinking none of them have called you up either. So... Well, like I said, I think there are applications to other areas of our life. Again, let's, let's keep studying what the preacher says here to get a good uh, picture of it. But as an advisor to a king who's not ruling well, what do you do? Well, verse 2, it gives us the general principle here. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him, or better, keep the king's command because of your oath to God out of loyalty, out of faithfulness to the oath that you took to God, keep the king's command. So that's the general principle. You're under authority, and you should obey that authority. But some commands are so bad and so foolish and sometimes just so outright evil that keeping the king's command, it's not just a simple option. And what do you do then? So here's where the situation gets more interesting, and the preacher's advice gets, a, gets more nuanced. It gets a little more complex here. Um, first thing the preacher says is that you need to avoid a kind of simplistic response, like just walking out and quitting your job. That's the first part of verse 3, if you look at it. He says, do not be hasty to go from his presence. I mean, you understand that sentiment, Right? You want to say, oh, I'm having nothing to do with this. Not my king, not my president. I quit. I'm not going to take responsibility for this king's decrees. Uh, well, the preacher, he doesn't really go into the rationale for it right here, but we can try to tease out a little bit of the thought behind it. Uh, again, you know, back then, uh, there would have been a very serious danger of getting your head cut off if you just walked out on the king. Because, you know, if verse 9 says this king rules over other people to their hurt, he probably wouldn't have any trouble executing an advisor that he felt was, you know, unfaithful or unreliable, someone who'd abandoned him. So, again, there's just a little bit of practical wisdom there. But there's other reasons for it. Um, in Ecclesiastes 10, verse 4, we read, uh, something very uh, relevant to this. It says, If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, 
for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Again, it's urging an advisor not to just walk out when the king is angry and is making bad decisions, leading badly. It's not just that it's a dangerous thing, but, you know, if you walk out, you forfeit the opportunity to be a peacemaker. That's kind of what verse, chapter 10, verse 4 is talking about. Uh, you miss out on the opportunity to try to convince the king of a better course of action. That's what advisors are sworn to do. And nobody said it was going to be easy for you. So, preacher is saying, don't respond in a simplistic way by just quitting. Then he balances that out by uh, saying, by urging us, you know, don't take another simplistic but wrong response, which is to just go along with whatever the king says. Yes, you need to obey the king, verse 2 says. But if you look in the second part of verse 3, he says, don't take your stand in an evil cause. In other words, there are limits. There are lines in the sand that a faithful believing person cannot cross. There are times when a Nebuchadnezzar commands you to bow down to the idol that he's made and you have to tell him, no can do. So the preacher is saying that as an advisor to a foolish or a corrupt king, you don't disengage uh, completely by just walking away and you don't capitulate completely and just Go along with whatever evil he's commanding. True wisdom requires a more nuanced, a more complex response. So, for example, instead of just quitting or simply voting along to approve some evil proposal, true wisdom may require the faithful advisor to pose some pressing but respectfully worded questions. If you look at verse 4, says, for the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? I'm gonna, I want to tweak the translation just a little bit at the end there. Um, I think the question, it's not who may say to him, what are you doing? Kind of as if, you know, nobody's allowed to ask the king a question. Nobody's allowed to question him. I think it should be translated, who will say to him, what are you doing? There's a difference there. It's asking, who's going to have the courage to inquire, to press back against some foolish plan that this king has in mind? Who's going to take the risk to try and gently persuade the king of a better course of action? Do you see that difference there? I mean, even asking a question like that can be a risky thing depending on how foolish the king is and how easily he flies off the handle. But, you know, sometimes you need to be the person who asks that question, the question that needs to be asked and which maybe other people are too scared to ask. The preacher is saying that there's other options out there besides just quitting your job or simply being a yes man. There's other options. And he goes on in verse 5, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. What that's saying is that there's, there's always a path. Uh, even among, uh, you know, in a difficult situation, there's always a path 
between these extreme but simplistic and not helpful responses, there's always a path by which you can maintain your integrity. It may be a very narrow path. It may require a lot of prayer and a lot of study of the word to find that path, but there is that path out there. And so you can somehow submit obediently to authority, keeping the king's command, while still avoiding sin and maintaining your integrity. You can be an obedient and faithful servant, but still you can know no evil thing. You can not be complicit in some evil plan. It takes great wisdom sometimes to know how to negotiate a stressful situation like that. But that's what it's saying at the end of verse 5 and going on into verse 6. The wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. Nobody said it was going to be easy taking this job, but there is a proper time and a just way. Now, all that said, you still have to be prepared for things to turn out badly for you sometimes. Uh, You don't know for sure how something will wind up. Maybe you do the right thing, and the king still gets angry and cuts your head off. I think that's the point in verses 7 and 8. It says, for he, man, but really speaking about this royal advisor, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? You don't know how anything's going to turn out. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. You don't know the future. The preacher said that so many times in the book of Ecclesiastes. You don't know the future. You don't know how the king's going to respond. And it may be that, you know, that, that time that you respectfully question or even challenge the king's plans, maybe that is the day of your death. You don't know that ahead of time, and you have no power over it one way or the other. But you're a person under authority, you're a soldier of sorts, and there is no discharge from the war, as verse 8 says. Just because your job has gotten hard and complicated doesn't mean that you can just be discharged and leave your post at will. You remain at your post and then you take whatever the Lord has decreed is coming to you. But you can do that in the assurance that you've done the right thing. And that counts for everything. So in a sense, I think verses 7 and 8 are put there to just remind us that there are times you kind of have to give up all hope for self-preservation and ease and comfort and for things to feel good. We're in a battle. We're in a war. We've been stationed somewhere, and we need to be faithful to that. Okay, so uh, this passage, dealing with royal advisors, royal counselors, and none of us uh, are in that sort of role today, so how is this applicable to us in any way? Well, some of you may be involved in leadership in other types of organizations. You're under authority, but you also have some authority. You have some standing 
to give advice and to help guide decisions. It may be something very minor and it's uh, insignificant, like you know your neighborhood association. Uh, some of you are in leadership roles in a business or in your place of employment. I know there are members of Rose Hill who are involved in uh, leadership in their condo or homeowners associations, uh, people involved in different clubs, educational institutions, community organizations, foundations, arts foundations, and all that sort of thing. There are principles here that apply to all sorts of other situations. You know, you may not be the top dog, but you may be in the position of giving advice to the top dog, and you won't always agree with that top dog. You won't always agree with what your superiors are proposing. So this passage is teaching you how to deal with those kinds of situations, how to respond in them. So there is, uh, we can make applications to other situations. Still, I, I expect that most of us, we're really not going to find ourselves in those kinds of difficult situations all that often. Not like the sort of thing that's envisioned here. There's one more application I want to make uh, in closing this evening. You know, on, on the most fundamental level, obeying commandments, submitting to a king's authority, Above all, that applies to obeying God's commandments and submitting to God's authority. The Lord is a king, right? He's a greater king by far than any human authority. And so we can take this passage and, and apply it to our relationship with him. And you know, we all know, well, he's God, he's king, he's the authority, I'm supposed to submit to him. Yes, we all know that. But frequently... That's a whole lot easier said than done, right? A lot of times, it's a struggle for us to submit to the Lord. And sometimes it's just because we just want something and we want to place our own interests and our own desires first. We just don't want to make the sacrifice that's being required of us. You know, For example, there's no question that obeying the Bible when it comes to sexual purity is a hard commandment for people to obey. It's particularly hard for Christian young people whose non-Christian peers seem to be having a great time ignoring the Bible's clear teaching on it. There's just an element of sacrifice involved there that we don't want to make. There's just an element of, I want this thing that the Lord says no to. So sometimes it's just that. Sometimes that's why we struggle with obedience. There are other times, though, and this is really what I want to key in on, when it really genuinely seems to us that the Lord, in a way, is not directing our lives in our best interests. It just doesn't seem like he's doing things right. And we feel like, complaining about our lot in life. Don't tell me you've never felt this way. We all do. There are those moments when, kind of like that royal advisor in Ecclesiastes 8, verse 4, we want to ask him, what are you doing? Why are you making me go through this? Why are you making my circumstances so challenging and just so unpleasant? Who's going to ask that of the Lord? 
Well, the Apostle Paul did, actually. Multiple times, he asked the Lord to take away a thorn in his flesh. What's he doing there? He's saying, Lord, you've given me this thorn in my flesh. It's painful. I don't enjoy it. Please take it away. What are you doing giving me this thorn in the flesh? Paul didn't just, you know, immediately turn his back on God like, you know, oof, this is hard. I wouldn't sign up for this. I'm out of here. No, he didn't do that. But he also didn't just passively lie down and accept it as if suffering, whatever kind of suffering it was, was just this inevitable thing. I guess God just wants me to suffer. Instead, he was like that wise advisor who respectfully went to the king and asked him, what are you doing? Would you please change what you're doing and take this thorn in my flesh away? Now, the Lord told him no. Uh, we know that from the scriptures. But, and that's always a possibility when you ask the Lord that question. But the point is, Paul was respectfully pressing. He was uh, posing that question to the Lord. Or if you think about it, how often do we read about the psalmist complaining in a pious and holy way to the Lord. I mean, he, the psalmist uses that language about laying his complaint before the Lord. Lord, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this to happen? Don't you see my situation? Don't you care? Aren't you going to do something about this? The psalmist speaks very openly. It's almost shocking sometimes about his complaining to the Lord. That's strong language. That's much stronger even than the advisor of Ecclesiastes 8, verse 4. You know, what are you doing, Lord? The psalmist is much stronger than that. What are you doing? It's okay to do that, though. I think the Bible encourages that type of prayer at times. There are those times... When you really need to have it out with God in prayer and you need to wrestle with him, like Jacob wrestling with God, you won't change God because God doesn't change. But you will be changed by that experience. And there are times when it is a great act of faith and trust to respectfully challenge the Lord. Lord, what are you doing about any number of circumstances in our lives. Maybe it's loneliness, maybe it's a health issue, maybe it's a lack of financial stability or financial means. There are times when prayer needs to be messy, like you're arguing with God. Martin Luther once said, I dispute much with God with great impatience. What a great statement, what a great confession he made there. There is a time to say, you know, thy will be done, Lord. But there's also a time to dispute with him with great impatience. And that's what Luther did. I dispute much with God with great impatience. He added after that, and I hold on to his promises. So there you have the great difference between questioning a human fallible king and questioning our divine king. Because we do have the promises of God. We may need to be reminded of them because we often forget about them when we're just miserable by all those thorns in our flesh. We usually forget about the promises then. 
but we need to call those uh, to mind. Or if we think about verse 9 again, the preacher said, he observed all this when man had power over man to his hurt. And again, that's a place where there's, a, there's an infinite difference between God's authority and man's authority. The Lord Jesus has power over us, but it's not to our hurt. It's for our blessing, and it's for our good. And if we're confident of that, then we can really wrestle with him in prayer and even complain in a holy sort of way. You know, you don't have to pray nice and polite all the time. The Lord can deal with all of your unfiltered honesty before him. In the uh, 2012 Western Conference NBA uh, Finals, I know you all remember that one, uh, Coach Greg Popovich of the San Antonio Spurs, he called his team into the huddle to try and turn their playing around uh, to win the game because they were playing hesitantly, they were playing without confidence. And so he gathered them around and he told his players, I want some nasty. Give me some nasty. What was he telling them? He was saying, play with some boldness. Play with some aggressiveness. Play with some confidence. And that's how we need to pray sometimes. Let your prayers be nasty if they need to be. They don't have to be eloquent and beautiful. But pray boldly. Pray with confidence. Like Jacob. Don't let go of him until he blesses you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we might uh, learn more and more how to approach your throne of grace with confidence, with boldness as Hebrews 4 says. Lord, uh, too often we are timid and uh, too uh, polite, as it were, in our prayers and not uh, honest enough with you. Lord, we pray that we might have just that uh, true uh, face-to-face fellowship with you, even when it's uh, wrestling, even when uh, we're combative. We know, Lord, that you will uh, tame our spirits. We know that you will work in us Lord, help us to become bolder in our prayers, more confident in your promises. And may we learn to pray not just for our own personal concerns, but help us to be more and more a priestly people who intercede for others, for those we know and love, and for the world around us. For Lord, the world does need your powerful working in it. We need you to send out your spirit to bring a great revival, a great turning to you. Lord, help us uh, to to, uh, take part in that by wrestling with you in prayer. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.